Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number three of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallett. I'm so happy that you found my podcast. If this is the first time that you've listened, I encourage you to subscribe and review, and also go back later and listen to the first couple of episodes. I find stories really interesting, and I find the storytellers themselves fascinating. So the idea behind this podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them. I'm excited about today's guest, David Fishman. David and I are former colleagues who've been friends for a long time. What that means is we've stayed in touch largely via Facebook because we haven't actually had a conversation in 25 years. Until now. Why did we do one now? Because David had a stroke a couple of years ago. A stroke I learned about from watching a TEDx speech that he delivered about the stroke and his recovery. I found the story amazing and it fascinated me. I wanted to hear more about it. And because David is a great storyteller, I knew that he would tell me that story and we would pivot on to many other subjects. But we're gonna start with the stroke. Um, so uh, I came home from the gym one day and uh, suddenly I couldn't find the letters on my uh, phone because I was sending a text message. And uh, I kind of worked my way through uh, taking a shower and the, uh, the internet was down and uh, my, uh, my daughter, Noah, whose um, uh, early childhood education was uh, spent uh, in a place that you introduced us to, where we were followed by hundreds of Israelis. I mean, oh, my God, what were you thinking? Um, <laughs> I, I, but, uh, I am a problem causer or solver, one or the other. I don't know. I mean, yeah. the whole point about uh, uh, solving problems is if you get to cause them first, that's, you know, that's a story. Yeah, it's true. Um, and so um, I was trying to get her, um, her bank account had been hacked. And uh, I was trying to uh, be on the phone with Comcast at the same time, where what do you know? Uh, I know 100 times more than them about what to do. And then suddenly my arm was feeling a numb and I couldn't manipulate my hands around the keyboard. And I said, you know, there's something, uh, something's not right here. And I said to Noah, who was uh, 21 at the time, I said, uh, you know, I think I should go to urgent care. Uh, tell mom we have to go to the bank. Because, uh, you know, part of the things that I've learned about uh, storytelling since my stroke is I used to think of a story as something that I would enjoy and you should all listen to because I was telling a really good story. And it <laughs> turns out that people... People react to my stories, whether I want them to or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of intuited that when I decided not to tell uh, Ziba that uh, something was wrong. Um, she later on found out that, uh, or she later on uh, allowed that she knew something was wrong because I couldn't tie my shoes. I just said to Noah, you know, I have this knot and uh, you've got good fingernails. Right? You can make it up another story, right? Uh, and uh, I get to the... Um, uh, I get to urgent care and, uh, you know, the, uh, first they said, uh, we can't see you because your insurance is not, uh, you know, not working right. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Welcome but, to the United uh, States. There was an, yeah. Um, you know, America. Yeah. There was an earthbound encounter who said, oh, no, you should just come with me. Let's not worry about that. And, um, the, uh, the doctor said I was having a stroke and I should get an ambulance. So the ambulance shows up and. Um, uh, chatting with the ambulance driver and you know, you know big good looking guys and so I want to introduce them to my you know my good looking 21 year old daughter and that's the last thing I remember and uh, when I woke up uh, I couldn't I couldn't talk uh, which for me is you know uh, proof positive that not only does God exist but boy she is one sick fuck has a hell of a uh, sense of humor I got to give her that absolutely I mean every day is a, a reminder. Um, I was able to muster a few words in Hebrew. Hebrew is my native language. I didn't speak English until I was four. Um, and uh, that, that was the recovery. I spent about a, a, a month in rehab. Um, my body started to recover uh, control on my right side. At a, a part of my brain, what they discovered was um, about there. Um, I had had a, um, 
stroke, which is to say uh, 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 not a uh, blockage, but a bleed, right? So think of it as a, you know, a spontaneous bruise. But what made my stroke even more interesting is that it wasn't upstream, right? It was downstream, right? And the, one of the uh, consequences of a downstream stroke is that it's like when the, um, the drain backs up into your sink, right? It just overflows to un, all kinds of unanticipated places. And it turns out that in your brain, the uh, part of your brain that controls uh, language and the part of your brain which controls the right side of your body happen to be adjacent. And, uh, you know, my dumb luck. So um, I was in, in rehab for a while. It was fun. I got to take off my clothes with beautiful young ladies. They didn't take off their clothes, but, um, you know, it was, uh, and, and I promptly realized how completely I luck, lucky I was because uh, other people in rehab, you know, they make it seem uh, dramatic and da 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 and, you know, late Amy Winehouse had a great song, but boy, let me tell you, these people were trashed. They were a mess, right? And of all shapes and sizes. And I was just, you know, kind of making trouble, you know, going from the wheelchair to the walker to, you know, without a, within a month, I was, I was out of there. But the, the most surprising thing was that I, I, I was stammering and I could not really organize a complete sentence um, in any sort of predictable way. Sometimes I could just rattle off the words, but for the most part, I became a stammerer, right? So I didn't used to talk like this at all. As, uh, as you well know, I'm uh, I think infamous for uh, talking 100 miles an hour. And so um, what was clear at the same time is that even though parts of my body didn't really work, particularly my right side, which to this day is um, not all that it was, um, the thoughts were clear. It took a little while to kind of make a sense of uh, what other people were saying. But the hardest uh, thing was recovering speech. The second hardest thing was recovering writing because I typed 80, 90 words a minute. I can't do that anymore. Um, but, uh, again, my dumb luck, those things are connected. Um, and, um, stories, uh, one of the things I love about stories is jokes, right? Which, you know, my family gets sick in because you know, it's hard to find something new, but the famous, uh, joke about, uh, a guy going, looking for the, uh, the farmer's market and he's, sees a guy walking with two watermelons. He says, oh, this guy must know where the, uh, where the farmer's market is. And so he says to the guy, uh, hey, can you uh, show me where the market is? And the guy says, uh, sure, hold these watermelons. And he hands him the watermelons. And then he shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so that was essentially my diagnosis. Is they don't know, right? Just some uh, weird anomaly in my, uh, you know, my internal plumbing. Uh, caused uh, brain damage. And I got a hole in my head that's about uh, the size of, you know, a, a knuckle and a half of my pinky. Uh, and uh, it happens to be in a particular place where uh, what I've learned is there are a lot worse places to have it. One of the really bad places to have it would be in your right brain instead of your left brain. Because in your left brain, you're kind of organizing language and rules and um, sort of, you know, uh, making, making sense of the world in terms of uh, structures and relationships. Your right brain is, you know, the, I think, common knowledge is that it, um, it, it is what we might call intuition. But another way to think about what the right brain does is it... Um, creates sort of a simultaneous story of what the hell's going on. And people whose right brain uh, is damaged, they lose the ability to make sense of what's going on without a story. Right? So you think about the relationship between the left and the right brain, you know, you're, you know, you being uh, somebody who's uh, both um, very visual as, uh, you know, your uh, photographic and um, uh, design skills. Uh, attested at, at the same time as uh, you know you have a gift for uh, for narrative uh, you know these things uh, go hand in hand it gives you a different um, a different understanding of, of insanity right we've all met people who we think are kind of crazy 
you think, okay, they're not making any sense. But what does that mean not to make sense? Mm -hmm. Well, what it means is you can't really connect the dots in a way that goes somewhere and you're trapped inside your own head. And uh, having been trapped inside of my own head and uh, still, you know, having a, li a little bit of a deficit, more it looms larger in my, in my mind than it does with, uh, I think, just anyone else except my family. Uh, that's a story in and of itself. Um, well, it's interesting because, you know, you and I, God, it's been a long time since we've talked. A long yeah. time. And uh, 25 years. Yeah. It's crazy. And when I saw the TEDx talk that you did, it was mm -hmm. the first I knew of this, right? Because I think you had right. done a pretty good job of not publicizing this. And, you know, we're friends. Yeah, I, on, I, kept, I kept it to a limited audience. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're friends on social media. So I, you know, I follow you and, but, but we haven't talked. And then I see this video and I watch the video. And my first thought was, that's just Fishman. Like you, you didn't look, sound, feel any different aside from the fact that we're 25 years older than we were, but right. you know, that, that was the you and talking now, this is you to me, mm -hmm. to an, to an, to somebody who knows you, but right. not on a granular day-to-day -day basis. But I can imagine that the getting to the point where we could have this conversation or you could do that presentation right. in a sense where somebody who doesn't know, doesn't know had right. to be a tremendous amount of work to, to get to that point. In, in, in two ways. Right. One was um, structuring a story that I could remember and repeat. And this was one of the things I identified. I mean, I have kind of a, you know, a, a somewhat a, a vexed relationship with this notion of, oh, you know, the brain can recover and you learn and da da da. Well, there are limits, right? There are hard limits. Um, but one of the things I uh, wanted to do right at the beginning was to uh, at least be in touch with a small circle, which, you know, in my world, uh, as you might imagine, means uh, only my 200 closest <laughs> recent contacts, right? So, you know, that's like a 90% reduction um, being the uh, compulsive extras that I, I always have been. Um, but I, uh, began after about, uh, halfway through rehab, right? So this is maybe day 17 until I got out of rehab, right? So five or six days in critical care, uh, and then, uh, um, uh, 17 days in rehab. So that's a little, a little less than a month. Um, and, uh, I realized I, I couldn't type. I tried to log on to Facebook and um, I mistyped a letter and that was it, right? I mean, Facebook was not going to let me back in. Um, so I decided to do some recordings uh, because it was the only way I could, you know, express myself. And uh, my kid brother said, you know, listening to you during, during doing these podcasts, it was so typically you because you just love to hear yourself talk, <laughs> which is true, right? Because for me, talk is talk, talking is a uh, an act of creative will. But um, you know, he said it lovingly, of course. But part of it was just like, how much do I? You're my older brother. How much of this do I have to listen to? And I said, you got to remember the reason I uh, recorded these was so that I could repeat the story. Because people ask, and it was hard to talk. But I also didn't want to say to them, <laughs> because you know, I've been in this situation with somebody who is far more uh, 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 badly off than anything, right? You know, we've, all, we've known people who've been terminal cancer patients. Yeah. What the hell do you say? Um, so I thought, I'm just going to take it easy on people and learn to tell the story that they can handle. But in order to do that, I had to practice, which for me was very new. And the TED Talk forced me to do the same thing because I had, uh, you know, a time story, right? Which is not different than, you know, we're both technology marketing professionals, right? So you have to sort of 
figure out how to fit it into a, an attention span quantum. But it also meant that I had to say, okay, what part of the story do I want to deliver? And how do I uh, establish a narrative arc that's going to get me to a destination within a certain amount of time? Yeah. It's interesting because I'm and, sitting well, here. The TED, talk, the TED Talk forced me to do that in a and, good way. And I'm sitting here listening to you talk about it. What's really interesting is, and, and you and I have both experienced this our entire careers, you know, part of part of being a marketer and certainly part of being a technology marketer is we create these, in our minds, genius narratives, these storylines about why somebody should give a shit about what it is we're trying to sell them. And right. then we take a, a, an intermediary third party called a sales guy yep. and we then equip them with that story that comes from our genius to go tell somebody. And of course it loses a, something in the translation there as they apply their own stuff to it, which generally isn't quite as genius as what we would have come up with. And the whole process of like, so how do you, how do you make it repeatable? Well, you teach them and you train them and you walk them through it until they can say it as though it's rote. Because in effect, what you're creating is a clone. You're creating somebody who can just tell the story. And then if you get one step away from the story, they're like, oh, man, I'm out of my depth now. I, I don't have the background. I haven't done the internalization. I used to tell people all the time, it doesn't matter what the story was necessarily. What matters is internalize the background and the data around the story so that you feel confident with what you're talking about. And I can imagine that's got to be a, a huge component. Like you knew the information. It was just a matter of you getting it out of your head and into your mouth and then out so it made sense to someone else. Um, you know, there's also, you know, you know, this, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it's probably apocryphal, but maybe it's not um, that Michelangelo actually said, look, all I do is I start with a block of marble and I get rid of all the parts that don't belong to the statue. And um, so the TED talk was like this uh, somewhere halfway in the time since uh, we last talked, uh, uh, someone defined product marketing to me as you write content for the salespeople and then you read it to them again and again <laughs> and again. And um, one of the things that always worked well for me to make that uh, uh, effective was to put the story not only in the frame of, okay, here, here are the things, there are five of them. Why five? Well, because You've got two hands. I only want you to use one of them. Um, and you know, it, it, it's one of many shortcuts that I've you know seen uh, less talented storytellers, or more importantly, less talented problem solvers uh, employ. But the most important part of any story is the punchline. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things you and I both learned over time in the art of marketing is the punchline is the critical part of the story. Where is this going? Mm -hmm. And um, the difference between those of us who are sane and those of us who are who believe we're sane and aren't, and the difference is pretty thin, is uh, having a sense of what's the destination for this story and how does that sense-making exercise get people to the other end of the work. Yeah. Because these salespeople, and more importantly, and this is you know something else I've learned in, in, in the years past, um, the way I learned it was trying to impart to others how my craft could help them do what I needed them to do. And what I what I, I came across about this notion of uh, telling a story uh, relating to a value proposition, which basically is, look, I'm going to tell you this joke, then you're going to give me this money. <laughs> right? That's the whole point of a value proposition. Right. Uh, but um, what I said is uh, our job as storytellers is not to tell a story. Our job of the storyteller is to tell, is to get someone else to tell the story as though it were their idea. Right. That is weaponizing the value proposition. And if your value proposition isn't sufficiently sticky to penetrate someone's, someone's um, the walls of someone's inattention so effectively that you can disappear, then your value as a storyteller is for naught. 
Yeah, the thing that and that, that's really, I think, where my um, my thinking about storytelling telling has changed dramatically um, ever since I couldn't put as many words out of my mouth as I used to be able to. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, you know, one of the tricks I learned probably since the time that, or the term that I coined at least since the time that we were together or worked together many years ago, was so what? Like I tell people all the time when they're storytelling, when I'm teaching them to do something, when I've created something, it's your point of getting what's the destination. I would apply the question of so what all the time. Our XYZ does YZZ. So what? You know, we're the fastest. So what? We're the cheapest. So what? We're the most powerful. So what? And just like to constantly grind people down to the idea of when you're, you know, no one buys the nicest car. Well, I shouldn't use cars as an analogy. As an analogy, probably people do buy the nicest car simply to say they own the nicest car. But from a professional perspective, when people or what buy they believe to be their nice, the yeah, nicest car, yeah. right? And, but from a professional perspective, you know, people just don't buy stuff unless it's going to solve a problem for them. So, so what? So what that you have this thing? And it, it's amazing how few people, at least that I see. I don't know if we were ahead of our time. Or if it's just, it's an evolving thing where people just haven't grasped onto that idea of, you know, a value proposition is exactly that. It's what is the value? What is the proposition of the value? So what? What is, what am I trying to get across to somebody here? I think the thing that's changed uh, uh, since the 90s um, is that, uh, I mean, you and I met each other right after Mark Zuckerberg's bar mitzvah, right? To which neither of us were invited. Yeah. Um, but the result is, is that the uh, succeeding assault that he successfully launched on everyone's attention span made the work that we do, which is, um, you know, uh, making sure that there's some connection between the, the, the story you're getting across and the problem that needs to be solved is that uh, everyone's much more exhausted than they ever were. And to get to the point where you say, all right, can you just pay attention? And in a sense, we as storytellers always had to kind of be at the center of attention. And so we evolved these... um, uh, I wouldn't call them superpowers, though. You know, that's a, <laughs> we talked a little bit about uh, over email about uh, the the that hateful thing, a resume. Yeah. But you know, because we understood that uh, uh, attention was a quantity that we needed to control in order to uh, make it through the chaos of our lives. Um, we kind of got ahead of it. And uh, after Zuckerberg's bar mitzvah, um, he, uh, he weaponized that in a way that is uh, in some way irreversible. Uh, all, in other ways, it made the problem that we set out to solve so much more, um, so much more compellingly important. It's it, it, in some ways it's worse. I mean, uh, early in our careers, slides were a uh, uh, pieces of uh, transparent uh, uh, plastic with uh, black and white drawings, and then came PowerPoint. But before then, uh, and there was enough of a transition. Our, our uh, former neighbor Scott McNeely, um, he, uh, he'd done this more than once, right? Um, he would pick up an entire uh, bundle of uh, transparencies and put them on the thing. It says, okay, here's my slides. Does anybody have any questions? Right. To to say, look, let me get this across. And what was uh, frustrating and ultimately made me want to get the fuck out of marketing was that this, um, you know, uh, what's that line from uh, 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 Finding Nemo where, um, uh, Albert, what's his name, who plays the, 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 the father, Fish. He's uh, swimming around the reef and someone says, you're a clownfish, say something funny. Which is kind of a you know famous famous joke about Jews, right? It was like, oh, you're Jewish. 
say something funny. Yeah. Um, and the notion that, hey, our job is not to connect. Our job is not to appreciate or feel or even be present. It is to entertain and scratch the itch which disguises itself as a problem. Yeah. So the people who are in that room who say, you know, solve my business problem, they don't know what their business problem right. is. They really don't. And the, um, you know, my conclusion after, you know, 30 years of marketing is it's good to have that skill, but that is not something I want to work on yeah. anymore. Yeah. I just don't want to do it because there are so many people who are bad at it and they come to you as a, well, you know, as something about your story, uh, something about your narrative, something about your value proposition, something about your stupid website doesn't work. And they're like, you're a marketing guy, fix it. Yeah. It's like, I am a marketing guy. And what I'm telling you is your shit doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And then um, if it's if they're writing your uh, paycheck, it doesn't matter. And if you can come up with a one-liner, I, I interviewed for a job uh, at some point. Actually, I, I got this job. Uh, and there was someone who was at the uh, uh, venture capital uh, firm where I was interviewing. Uh, she was brought on as the uh, marketing consultant for the VCs. Right. And this is, I think, before uh, the VCs had really woken up to how distorted their, um, you know, their worldview was, which is, you know, male and technical. Right. Because otherwise, why yeah. would you be a VC and why would you know anything? Right. Right. You and I, in particular, not having had formal technical training in classrooms with, you know, uh, uh, noted uh, uh, institutions. Uh, uh, print uh, engineers, um, we'd always been like a fish out of water. It's like, okay, we need one of those, almost like arm candy. Yeah. And so this woman uh, asked me, so, well, so what are you going to do with marketing? So I was talking about, you know, uh, this is the target audience. I think these are the people we're going to be talking to. And she's, no, 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 no. Tell me what you're going to do. And I thought, oh my God, she wants stand up marketing. That's what she wanted. Yeah, she wants she you to wanted... tell her what the tactics are. Yeah, not even the tactics. It's tell me a fucking marketing joke. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Say something funny. Yeah. Right? Tell me a joke. You're Jewish. You're a clownfish. Say something funny. And the good news for me has always been that I knew enough words and I could put together enough stories and I had some cultural uh, uh, references that I could make something up on the spot. They're like, that's great. You get the job. And I did. I got the job. Didn't make a difference. The, you know, the company sucked and they hated me. But um, uh, the fact is that this notion that marketing is some way in which you and shared understanding, that has been drained from marketing completely. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. But work in marketing again, it'll be too soon. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because there are ways in which we can help the people who misunderstand it. But, you know, between Zuckerberg and uh, you know, our other neighbors, uh, uh, Paige and Bryn, um, uh, they have just, uh, they've just destroyed the ability to, um, to do what we're doing now, which is to have a conversation. Yeah. Um, you asked me about how I ended up in Israel. Um, and the, the short answer is uh, I ended up in Israel because I didn't want to marry an American girl. I wanted to marry a Jewish girl. And I figured there'd be plenty of them here. And it turned out to be true. Um, but that was 1988. Um, the way I ended up here now is because of Corona. Because I just couldn't stand being in the house anymore, meeting people. So what, what, how do we gravitate? to coming to this place, right? So my family, this they have a direct connection. My parents met here. I lived in Jerusalem. Uh, your father now, your father was a rabbi, right? Your, your dad's yeah, a my rabbi. My father's a rabbi. And, that, yeah. and that's, I think, one of the, the, uh, the central uh, touchstones of narrative, which is um, 
my uh, my heritage, not as in you know a mixed of this and thing like that, but you know um, the uh, the heritage, the Jewish heritage was um, there's there's actually a term for this it's called narrative theology, which is what the hell's going on in the world? Uh, somebody's got to be in charge. Let me tell you a story, right? Ta-da, the Bible. Yeah. Right. And which, by the way, with- which, which, by the way, to interrupt you for a second, it's really funny because it, since the time that we were together for a number of years at an Israeli company, I then worked for two more. So I spent yes. a lot of time in Israel. And in fact, more time more recently than back in those days. And uh, you once told me 30 years ago, because we worked with somebody who you may recall, who was very Christian, and he was a bit of an outlier where we worked together. Yes. And you looked at me one day and said, eh, Christianity, it's just Judaism with a better user interface. Yep. Classic Fishman storytelling. I have right. used that so many times with guys in Israel who think it's the yep. funniest thing that they've ever heard. Kind of your marketing you know, stand-up thing, but yeah. totally resonant to the people that I was with there. Anyways, I digress. Back to you. No, but the, part of the thing that was that draws me to Israel and, and, and still does right? It's particularly funny now that I'm at the other end of my life. Like when we met, our children were babies, right? Now your children have babies. Mine don't yet, but it's, you know, just a matter of time. Um, My tie to Israel back then was my family, my grandparents who lived there, my mother who met my father here, and left, which kind of uh, destroyed my grandfather, who had this whole dream of uh, rebooting the Jewish people in this ancient homeland, right, which we now have done uh, pretty fucking successfully. Um, And then coming back uh, uh, 25 years later in my life since we left, now it's more like 26 or 7, the place I ended up staying when I got here was around the corner from the apartment where my son was born, the one who's now, you know, 26 years old with a master's degree and, you know, yeah. uh, uh, taller and funnier and smarter and um, just so many more things that I never thought I would be. Um, and I asked myself, am I attracted to this neighborhood because of the nostalgia? I mean, is the nostalgia really a story? Or is it just sort of this good feeling? And the truth is, part of it's just a good feeling, right? We have this sort of story in our heads of the nostalgia of, you know, my parents and their parents and their parents. And the children don't have all of that. But as you and I um, get closer to the, the end, right? You know, you and your, in, in your family having lost your parents, my parents are still alive, but they are, you know, they are getting up there. And if they're still, you know, huh. my father's uh, sister lived to the age of 106 and a half, right? So, you know, maybe I shouldn't count on that uh, inheritance anytime soon. But um, that sort of arc of from over here to all the way there is now my own life. I walk down the street next to the apartment I met my wife. I, I lived with when, when my, my wife and I were there. We're about to be married 30 years. And I, I had asked myself, it's like, is Tel Aviv awesome because I love who I was then, but I'm, I'm not that person now? And that's, that's still a struggle. But the flip side is, back then, there were all these hot women and I met one and she married me. And today, there are all these hot women, and uh, I think of them more as girls dressed in women's bodies. Yeah. And I'm completely, completely invisible to that. Yeah. Well, you know, completely. But that sort of experience of a story in my mind populated by all these independent actors who have nothing to do with me is still profoundly meaningful because I, can, I live in that story. That's very different than the kind of stories that we tell. When you live in a story, and Israel allows you to do that, some of the story is bullshit. Some of it is, you know, is uh, out and out lies. 
Some of it is partial truth, and some of it is surprisingly, irreducibly eternal. Mm -hmm. But having all that around right there, I mean, in Israel, you probably have less of the um, uh, less of the context than I do. But you know, I studied a lot of Jewish history in addition to you know Jewish, uh, uh, let's call it a sacred text, Bible, and whatnot. Um, so I know that I know about all these guys whose the streets are named after, them, mm-hmm. right? Some of these guys were my grandfather's buddies in the in the thirties. Yeah. Um, so walking around the street, and I said, oh, "I know who this guy is. And I know that guy. Is good. And who know, I know know who this guy is." I say this to my kids, and they're just like, "Eh, <laughs> right." But for me, having other people's stories becomes a source of meaning that is far deeper than any stories we can tell each other, right? I can learn to appreciate other people's stories, especially when they're not there to tell them. I have to go look them up and say, yeah, I remember this guy. Who is this guy? And make, make, make these connections that uh, I think those of us who've lived long enough to see all these stories play out, we are, um, we're rethinking. The ultimate story, of course, is the whole, you know, biblical shit, right? Uh, you know, the world's crazy. I don't know what's going on. Someone's being charged. God. Yeah. Uh, you know, tell me what happens on day three. Yeah. Oh, day three. Day three is great, man, because they created both uh, the stars in the sky and uh, uh, the birds and the and the creatures. In in fact, um, there's a uh, uh, back to old you know uh, old old Jews telling jokes. Um, in the Jewish tradition, uh, the the in the the creation story, right? Making up these things, where we come from, is like okay, there's uh, uh, this many days, seven days, right? That's where it all came from, and we just count them off: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's a number I can keep in my head. Um, the um, <laughs> there evolved a rabbinic tradition or a tradition in the rabbinic text that said uh, on Tuesdays, the third day, because in, in Hebrew, uh, the names are not Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, but they're called uh, day one, day two, day three, yeah. day four. Yeah. It's like day three, day four day, right? Uh, the third day, Tuesday, had two creation stories, right? And so the rabbinic uh, kind of witticism was that sex on Tuesdays is particularly good. Because you're doing it twice. Two ways of creating. These are the things that always stuck with me about Jewish, um, you know, Jewish storytelling, that having grown up as the son of a rabbi and grown up with a lot of these stories and texts and grown up with, um, you know, this uh, uh, Jewish ritual of reading the same stories year in and year out in the synagogue that this happened, that happened. Some of the stories were just kind of just, you know, they're just funny. Yeah. Right. Um, but that sense of, you know, the continuity of narrative, this, uh, um, the, you have a point of reference in the narrative, right? So let's take the, the joke about Christianity and the user interface, right? Is <laughs> we're technology. User interface, right? So here I am, uh, a guy whose family's from Israel, and my mother left Israel despite the fact that, you know, uh, it was her father's greatest dream, and I'm living with this contradiction. But a lot of the way in which you can make um, storytelling work is paradox. So I always gravitated toward this notion of like, okay, how do we take these things that are completely disconnected? And just stick a finger in. Mm-hmm. And uh, this country, this 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 place in the history, creates so many opportunities. And Jewish history has so many crazy ironies that um, that I, I bring that to these uh, um, uh, professional storytelling opportunities when I have to explain some problem to someone who does not. Uh, have the time to pay attention, let alone understand the problem, let alone give me the benefit of the doubt about yeah. why I have something to say about the problem. Yeah. 
Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I, I, you know, I've told people forever that, um, people hand wave about solutions, right? They're, they, they think they know their problem, you know, an exam, mm-hmm. and I use, it's a terrible example, but I'm going to use it again, which is, you know, everybody knew about terrorism for 50 years and frankly, right. no one gave a shit. Until two airplanes happened to slam into the World Trade Center and a third one happened in the Pentagon. Then everybody was like, oh, my God, we've got to stop terrorism. And everybody focused on it and said, we have to stop this thing that's existed forever that we've done very little to, you know, to stop until now. And, uh, you know, and now everything starts there. You know, we, we, and then we tell these stories around it and we hand wave around the things that we're going to do because of this risk of this thing. And, uh, you know, then there's things like, like COVID which no one thought about, right? No one, no one thought anything. Like, you know, the idea that there would be a pandemic in the 21st century, you know, nobody thought pandemics, those are like 1918. That was a pandemic. There's not going to be another one of those. That's a perfect example of a narrative fallacy, which is we believed that the passage of time and progress were synonymous. Yeah. Things used to be shitty in the past, the past is over, therefore things are better. Right. And suddenly this uh, pandemic thing had so, uh, has so inverted our um, grasp. And it, it, it didn't invert our grasp, it, uh, it dissolved it. It said, wait a minute, you think you know the story, we're going to tell you the story is different. Yeah. Part of the story is math. Math is a hard story to tell, especially because it has rules. And you don't get to make up those rules. And you, 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 you know, again, past past Zuckerberg, but also in the notion that the, um, you know, our uh, progressive history from well, you know, World War One and World War Two, we're not going to do that again. And then Vietnam, well, we're not going to do that again. And then Afghanistan, we're not going to do that again. And, yeah. and on and on. Or communism, we're not going to do that again. Remember uh, when the Berlin Wall fell? Someone said, yeah. uh, Francis Fukuyama said, "Oh, it's the end of history." It's like, how could we have been so stupid? The best story about COVID came from one of my intellectual heroes. This guy um, won the Nobel Prize, uh, Daniel Kahneman. And um, when they interviewed him in the early days uh, uh, of the pandemic, um, they said to him, uh, you know, this pandemic is going to be exponential, right? So every day or every very short amount of time, it's going to double, right? That's exponential. It's mm-hmm. not like this plus that, you know, two plus two is four. And then uh, after four, what comes? Well, six, right? Well, that's six, eight. You know, maybe it's going to go from two to four to eight. No, no, those are really big numbers. So... Kahneman, in the interview, says, I was thinking of going to Paris. And I realized that this is a pandemic and it's going to grow exponentially. But then I said, oh, come on. How fast could that really be? I'll go to Paris anyway. And then he, he, Kahneman says, realized, oh, my God, I won the Nobel Prize in economics. (laughs) And I cannot wrap my head around the that the story is outside of my control. Your emotions tell you a story. It's that you fill in the blanks where they don't actually uh, exist. You create stories in your head. We do that every day when we go to sleep. Yeah. The problem is we keep doing it when we wake up. Well, yeah. So if the guy who won the Nobel Prize could misunderstand the pandemic. God help us with all those people who are not one of the Nobel. And, and what's really interesting is, and you know, it, it touches back on on the points you made about Zuckerberg, and it actually touches back on what you and I have both done for our entire careers. The, the you know, I've looked at and I've had many friends comment to me on this over the last you know fourteen months that um, what we've really done a shitty job of as a world, as a as a society is marketing this pandemic. Like we haven't marketed what the real dangers were effectively. We haven't marketed what the solutions were. We've let narratives take over that defy math, right? There's math that tells you the extent of this. There's math that tells you, 
what happens if you don't reach immunities. There's math that tells you what the economic impact is going to be. We ignore those because we have this other thing, this this creative thing where people have said, yeah, we kind of live in a post-truth world. So stories don't, you know, like the truth doesn't matter. Just tell me an interesting story. And to a certain degree, the people on kind of the right side of this, as I would call it, not right politically, but the correct side of this, haven't done a good enough job of marketing. Like, why should people, like, I know it's much different in Israel in terms of vaccination. Like, I don't, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. I live in Georgia half the time and in Florida half the time. And the vaccination rates here are like less than 30% of the populace that's vaccinated. They're, they're literally, normal. I, 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 I hope you're normal. Yeah, it's, it's insane. I, I, I picked up the phone the other day to call Publix, which is a grocery store, which where we have, yep. um, we have prescriptions. And I called to place a prescription over the phone. And the first thing on the voicemail was that answered was, was if you're calling to cancel your COVID vaccination appointment, press one. It wasn't if you're calling to make a COVID vaccination appointment. It's like you made one, but now you're canceling it because you just don't care anymore. And it's just insane to me. And, you know, I know Israel's done this, this spectacular job compared to the states and is reaping the benefits of that professionally and just socially. Like I know that from I have enough friends there to know that like socially it's pretty much back to normal. Whereas it is exactly back to normal. And in Florida and Georgia, it's back to normal, but not in a good way. It's back to normal yeah, so, where you're like playing Russian roulette back to normal. You, 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 the, the famous, um, the, the famous one liner from Shrek, some of you may die, but it's a price I'm willing to pay. Yeah. Um, here's something that um, I think we as storytellers uh, were probably doomed to fail on, which is let's go back to sort of the root of uh, narrative theology and storytelling, which is, the world is really scary. What if it is completely, completely, indescribably out of control and random, and we could just be wiped out in a second? Nah, that's a little, you know, we should make up stories of floating gases in the, you know, uh, little balls of gas in the sky that burn out. And, you know, we see all these things that um, fear is such a profound dimension of narrative. Narrative is an effort to outrun fear. And what's happened with the pandemic is it turns out you might not be able to outrun fear. Mm -hmm. You might not be able to outrun fear. And in a country like Israel, where this um, you know fear is not uh, far beneath the surface, either in recent history, because you know, Israel's doing very well in on the world stage, but, you know, 75 years ago, you know, uh, go go back to Europe in the first half of the 1940s, um, fear was not a theory. Yeah. Right. And then even here, where uh, compared to uh, crime, uh, terrorism here is probably at a lower rate than violent crime. Certainly it's uh, you're let, less at risk in Israel from terrorism than you are in uh, America as a black man or woman to be, you know, uh, assaulted, let alone killed by some, uh, you know, some misguided or accused or frightened uh, a law enforcement officer who does not have um, um, an organizational hierarchy. You know, yeah. there's 18,000 yeah. police departments, right? So the thing that's worked here is to say, um, hey, we have some common purpose. What do we need to do around this common purpose? Now, some of that common purpose is completely fictional, but we buy into the fictions. Mm -hmm. We're in this together. The, um, the stories, some of them are completely true. Some of them are partially true. Some of them are pure myth, but they held well enough together to keep going. In the states, things like 18,000 police departments, where if you can't get a job with this police department, you go to that police department. In Israel, if you can't get a job in the police department, there is no other police department right. you can go to. Right. Forget it. Right. Right. You're, and so that kind of uh, sense of common purpose does the trick. 
in America, the sense, uh, you know, this, these competing narratives about you can't tell me what to do and we're all in it together. Um, the, uh, the social dynamic of, you know, we, we get together in cities or we go live out in the country, um, that has, um, that's kind of unraveled. Here, you still have, um, you know, there's a story, uh, story, uh, uh, very uh, troubling and tragic event that happened in Israel a week and a half ago, a week ago, mm -hmm. where there was a big religious festival by super, super religious guys. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they visited some, um, this uh, uh, ancient rabbi's uh, tomb. And you think about it, I mean, I've been to places like this. It's essentially a cross between a historic site and a parking lot. Mm -hmm. right? Things are not sort of like uh, nice tourist museum-y things, right? It's it's kind of a mix of that and bleachers, and it was just not well organized. And not only not well organized, there were fourteen different uh, uh, religious uh, uh, groupings who were all in charge, and it went completely catastrophic and mm -hmm. 45 people were trampled to death. I mean, whatever the, de the death toll was in that, that who concert in Ohio uh, 30, 40 years ago, but you know, it's four times worse and a much smaller country. Yeah. To me, the striking thing was the relationships that uh, the people who are not religious had, everyone took this seriously as though, hey, this is us. It's not those people, mm -hmm. right? In the same way that, um, you know, you would say, well, blue lives matter or all lives matter or anything that would let people to say, okay, you know, this is not me, mm -hmm. right? I can, you know, I, I don't have to worry about vaccination because I live in uh, some somewhere else or it's fake because I live in the suburbs and all those people who live in apartment buildings they're of uh, this background or that background, so uh, I'm going to cancel my vaccination appointment, right? The sense of common purpose that overcame the fact that, you know, the, the these were all very, very, very religious men, just men. Mm -hmm. There were no women, mm -hmm. right? But the entire country responded to this with, this is, this is I, I read stories here this this the limited amount of stuff that made it to the states that I read about it I'm sure there was more that made it but the things that I read was even you know female soldiers in the IDF that were there on the res on rescue missions trying to help people were getting abused by people yeah. because they were women and they had you know they had taken the the horrible step of of joining the army and you know they weren't yep. subservient and it was just amazing to read it and those women basically said we don't care we have a job here and the job is to help you whether you want me to help you or not. And I'm going to do that job because you're, you know, to your point, it's common purpose. I'm trying to do the right thing here and I don't care about the abuse I'm getting. I probably do care at a personal level, but from a professional perspective, I'm just going to plow through this and do what I need to do. It's one of the things that's really interesting here, but you also see it in, uh, in the States and you certainly saw in and around Corona here um, in medical establishments, the minute that they cross the threshold from um, you know a political conflict to medical situation, that all goes out the window, right? So uh, there was a shooting incident at uh, an army base uh, this morning. Uh, three 21-year-old kids decided that they were going to uh, attack the uh, occupiers, which is to say the you know people from Palestinian village or Palestinian town. Uh, you know, got some underground, uh, you know, ma managed to get some black market weapons and attached, attacked uh, a base. Two of them were shot dead immediately. And the third one uh, uh, was shot and taken to the hospital. And then in the news, they said uh, 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 he was in critical condition. So they upgraded him to a more, uh, you know, a, a, a more professional hospital, which to say, ultimately, what connects us in this situation in these stories is some common purpose, right? We may hate each other. We may be angry that, you know, our, uh, you know, our side did this to your side and your side did this to my side and da 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 da, da. 
But there is a point where you say, wait a minute, death is just the wrong outcome. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to do is everything possible to reverse that outcome. The thing that terrifies me about America is like, ah, oh, you know, some of you may die, but it's a price I'm willing to pay. Yeah. It's like, no, no. It's like, whether you're black or white, whether you're rich or poor, should that not, you know, whether, should, whether you're a felon or, or not, should you vote in Florida, right? It, it, it boggles the mind that the stories allow um, uh, some populations or some storytellers to lead the attention deprived or the attention challenged to say, you know what, this is really complicated. So can you just tell me something simple? Yeah. Like you know, the election was stolen. Yeah. Or the police are out to get me. Or, um, you know, I see some black kid. Uh, uh, I, I see some guy jogging. I think he's black. Uh, and in my neighborhood, I know the guy is a district attorney. So fuck it. Let's just shoot the guy. Right. Right. It, 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 it blows my mind that um, stories are so powerful and so evil that um, they can completely hijack us. But the root of these stories is fear. And this is where, you know, uh, to come back around to your, your previous point, this were, was the colossal failure of marketing is that we were unable to outrun fear. We have got to find a way to outrun fear. And the previous president, thank God he's, uh, you know, he's been muzzled because he was making money off of everybody's fear. And, uh, you know, we all, we all, you know, <laughs> we make money off fear one way or another, yeah. but there's a limit, yeah. right? There is a limit. Yeah. And uh, 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 today I just wonder, it's like, wow, that fear is so out of control. How do we do it? You know, can we put the genie back in the bottle? I don't know. Yeah. I'm here because I'm not so sure. Yeah. All right. So I think that's a good place for us to sort of wrap up the formal part of this and we're almost dead on for time. So I've got a little thing I'm doing on the pod, which is uh, to end everyone. And I didn't give you any prompting on this at all. I'm calling it three and out. So okay. three questions, three questions, no prompting at all. What's the uh, most recent show or movie you've seen or binge watched? And do you recommend it? Um, the, uh, the last one was um, Agent Carter. Um, I've long been a, um, uh, you know, a comic book geek. Um, I used to say, and you remember this cause we were in meetings when I did this, um, what I wanted to do when I went, when I graduated high school was to, uh, you know, write science fiction. So instead I went into tech marketing. Same thing. But, yeah. One of the things that drove me to, uh, uh, to science fiction was comic books. And when I was done with all the Avengers, I was done with all the Disney, and now I have the Disney Channel, I came across Agent Carter, which I hadn't watched before. And here is, as they would say in Yiddish, a Zafiga Mädel, right? So this is a young woman who is in a, a classic World War II body. In fact, it, it, you know, the uh, objectification of women is a clear underlying story of... Um, uh, of uh, Agent, uh, the Agent Carter story, right? This is a woman who was Captain America's uh, girlfriend and she survives the war to work in, uh, in intelligence. Um, <laughs> the sick thing is in real life, she was uh, um, uh, insulted and abused uh, for being, um, you know, uh, not, uh, not the proper shape Right, just beautiful, a beautiful woman who is just a shit kicker in this show. Um, but one of the reasons I liked the show was I grew up with no sisters, and now I have two daughters, mm -hmm. and my daughters are not shaped like Barbie dolls. In fact, no one's shaped like Barbie dolls, right. they're not like supermodels. And I think, wow, how tough it is to be a woman in the world where stories and appearances are so twisted, watching this story and seeing this woman 
just kick ass in the most substantial kind of goofy superhero way. Um, I finished season one and I can't wait to get going with season two. Cool. Also, it's the jazz age, right? I mean, let me tell you, I wish I could, we could still dress like those people. Yeah. So, so that's a good pivot. So next question for you, jazz age, what's your favorite song? What's your current song or artist musically that you've got on repeat? Like, who do you really like um, that you're, you know, there's, there's two, one is an Israeli band, um, because, uh, one of their, um, one of their uh, hit, hits uh, was a song called Roni, which is my daughter's name, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, my daughter, Noah, who at the time before Roni was born was eight. Uh, she came up with that idea. So, so let's name her Roni. So I, and, and it, and it's, you know, as a sort of a, let me just think of a, a, a song, you know, so uh, almost any popular song in the States, not, not comes to mind. So there's that. Yeah. But my my go to in American music is and always will be Bruce. Well, right? we have that in common. So, I think we have that yeah. one in common. So yeah, always Bruce. So lately, I've been listening to um, um, well, uh, a, a close friend of mine who passed away. Um, um, uh, I'm uh, I'm trying to I I can't retrieve like I once did, but um, there's um, I'm trying to think of it. He wrote this about a friend of his who was a diver, uh, who uh, 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 um, when he was born they broke the mold, mm-hmm. right? And uh, you know I, I I always think about that when I think about Rich. He would have been uh, he would have been 58 uh three weeks ago and um uh so those stories that bruce uh tells uh especially his reputation as a storyteller right Uh, he told uh you know i am a fraud boy i really identify with i am a fraud so last one um you mentioned kahneman and i'd seen daniel kahneman in your in your tedx talk actually um so pivots like what's a what's a good book or the most recent book you've read or a favorite podcast other than this one that you've listened to you know give, give me a good book or podcast or something we can recommend to people. Um, I've been listening to Ezra Klein and there's one in particular um, where he interviewed a guy who is a uh, a psychiatry professor looking about looking at anxiety and. Um, Part of the saying is that, you know, uh, we, uh, one way in which we express anxiety is we look for ways to organize and structure our lives and plan, right? Planning, the exercise planning is an anxiety. And so this uh, guy whose name is Judd uh, something, uh, as a professional psychiatry from Brown, he recommended a book, which I'm reading, which is called The Art of Racing in the Rain. And the art of racing the rain is, uh, I'm probably about a third of the way through it. It's about a guy who has a dog. The dog is the narrator. <laughs> and part of the suggestion recommending the book is the dog is always about uh, just being present. It's just, it's where he is. And he's not thinking about uh, what does this all mean? And, you know, trying to make sense of, of things based on a narrative. It's mm-hmm. all, you know. And a dog tell a story? No, in the internet, no one knows you're a dog, <laughs> but they're still dogs. The uh, the story is um, told about a guy who uh, was particularly talented at uh, uh, driving uh, uh, race cars in the rain. Why? Because when you're driving in the rain, you can you can only pay attention to one thing, which is staying on the road. You can't think about winning. You can't think about the other guy. It's okay. Just be in that moment. And I'm looking for ways to do that and not escape into a story. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.